just want to get a sense who in the room is aware of uh, Michael Stone's life and work. Did anybody follow him at all? <coughs> a few, a few people. Anybody who didn't know of Michael's work read in the news recently that he had died? A couple, couple, a little bit, yeah, a few more hands. <coughs> Um, Michael Stone was, uh, I believe my age, 42, I think, and in my estimation, a really gifted teacher, uh, a very, it's clearly a very, very devoted practitioner of yoga and Buddhist meditation, and for me, a role model, both as a practitioner and as a, and as a teacher. Um, it was easy for me to discern from his public schedule what he wrote and what I heard on audio that he had given so much of himself to understanding we could say the Dharma and all that that umbrella term contains, the yoga tradition, uh, the tradition of the Buddha, um, and the task of exploring and understanding suffering in consideration of the possibility of, of peace. He was. Uh, He was, a, he was a devotee who didn't wear robes necessarily, uh, but he really was very much, uh, as I saw him, uh, to such an extent that when I read his work and paid attention to what he was doing, it, it made me want to do more. So I had a little bit of a love-hate <laughs> relationship with him. Uh, and. And I never met him, but when I say relationship, the way I encountered his teachings created an edge for me. That's what I mean by love or hate. Uh, I was really inspired by what he was doing, and in some way it asked of me to do more, and that was uncomfortable for myself, right? See that? <coughs> <coughs> a little bit over a week ago, today's Thursday, so two weeks ago, if I have the details right, and forgive me if they're off a little bit, um, Michael went uh, into town. He lived somewhat uh, rurally on the coast, the west coast of Canada. He had been in Toronto for many years where he, in his garage, started a meditation group. Mm -hmm. And a couple people came and no one knew who he, who he was. And uh, I don't think Michael knew that he was going to have such an impact on the yoga and Buddhist community as he did. I don't know if he cared that no one came to his garage. He just 
wanted to practice, needed to practice, was honest about that in his, in his writing, and his love for the teachings and the way they were informing him was so strong that I imagine he, would, he just wanted to share with whoever would come. And at the end of his life, he had a, a broad inter. He had left the garage and started a, a meditation center called Center of Gravity in Toronto and directed that for many years and then uh, started to grow a family and moved more rurally so that he could practice more and, and write more. And um, essentially at that time had a, had a virtual community, had an international, of, international community of yoga and meditation <coughs> students, very inspired by, by what he was doing. And so as I understand it, he would do these semi-regular trips into the city. And, um, Two weeks ago on a Thursday, he went into town to get um, to run his errands. You know, had his to-do list, I imagine. <clears throat> on the way in, he called a addict, some kind of an addiction center with a pharmacy attached, and he inquired about the possibility of getting some pharmaceutical support. Uh, for himself and was told uh, after some kind of conversation that he was not eligible for the support that he was looking for and he went on his way to get a haircut. Uh, his wife thinks he exercised, uh, did some shopping and somewhere in there arguably desperate for a change of mind state, he sought uh, and found uh, drugs on the street. And he didn't come home on Thursday night and his wife filed a missing persons report. And when the police located him, he was unconscious and upon arrival at the hospital had no brain function. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, Michael had no history, uh, no recent history of using or misusing uh, prescribed or uh, recreational drugs in any way. He had become more open with close friends about uh, a long history of depression, which he did write about. One of the early things that I recognized about Michael was that he would talk, that he would write about, sometimes talk, but I remember reading it initially, about his own struggles with depression. That's one of the things that I remember about him. and. As you might know, in the older generation of, of teachers, the teachers who are now in their 50s and 60s and 70s, if you've read their books, we don't know a lot about their personal lives. And as you know from working with um, some of the younger teachers and, and some of my colleagues in the Against the Stream community, uh, we 
like to and it's appropriate to point to the ways that the practice has helped us and has alleviated certain discomforts but also to try to share a little bit about uh, and sometimes a lot about our own life and Michael was pushing that boundary before some of us were but he never shared uh, explicitly that he suffered from bipolar disorder that wasn't public knowledge and they were able to keep it that way. But more and more recently he had been talking about it with, 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 with a wider range of people closer to him and I read one account that said he was considering what it would look like to come out uh, given the, the access he had to, to a wide range of students, uh, what might be the benefit of, of, of doing that in, in the context of an ongoing discussion and exploration of suffering and mental health and, and dharma and in, in community? He was, he was very invested in, in uh, conscious community and activism. He was an activist. Very interested in social and ecological uh, justice. <clears throat> so, what else can I tell you about um, Michael? In terms of the details, he uh, was on life support over the weekend so that, uh, according to his prior plans, his organs could be donated. Uh, and they were, I think, two people's lives actually were saved. I think his kidneys and lungs went to other people. And also so that his family and close friends could come in and, and be with him. So he was on life support uh, through Sunday night. And he died late Sunday night. Um, Michael was a clinical psychotherapist. Uh, he was... an incredible uh, Hatha yoga teacher, a teacher of posture practice, who, as well as anybody alive, as far as I'm concerned, wove in the deep inner uh, philosophical and psychological tradition of, of yoga and Patanjali's yoga sutras, and a very gifted uh, Dharma teacher, influenced by Zen, and Theravada, Vipassana, study with many, many different teachers, uh, <coughs> often, often took retreat. Uh, another element of his life that inspired me as a, as a practitioner uh, and, and, and as a teacher. Michael tried with a fair amount of success using he, he tried using meditation and yoga to navigate understand, address heal uh, his depression and also the uh, often more problematic manic 
space of, of bipolar. And effectively mitigated those uh, difficult mental states for, for, for many, many years, and was engaged in a, a variety of other um, self-care factors, from exercise to diet to acupuncture. Uh, I don't know for <coughs> sure, but, sure, but as a really sort of ethically inclined psychotherapist, probably doing therapy and also engaging the medical community uh, when he needed to to see uh, how that might also inform his his path, so he was um, he was very open in, in 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 doing all that he could to to take good to take good care of himself. So he was a, a teacher, an author, psychotherapist, not currently practicing at the end of his life. His, his teaching was too consuming, and he had given himself fully to that. He uh, was a writer. When he died, he had four books in progress, all to be published within the next two years. Um, he had already written five books on yoga and meditation. Um, What I'll do at the end, I have four of them. I'll, I'll, I'll put them in the back so you can take a look at them if, if, if you haven't seen them before, uh, before you leave tonight. So I, I brought those in to, to share with you. As I said before, he was, he was, he was deeply, deeply passionate about practicing and teaching. And he really expressed in, in numerous ways a great, great love for his, uh, for his students and for these ancient traditions. And specifically, and not only does he do this, but he says often um, in interviews, uh, I want to know how to make these teachings accessible for the real world that we actually live in. Right? So he was, he was a pioneer in translating esoteric and ancient tradition in a way that was very palatable, very easy for people like us living in the world that we live in, in an urban or not urban environment, um, to make good use of. That was, that was his task. You know, I was looking at his website today, and he was listing all the things that he did and the services that he provided. And, and then in big letters and bold facing, he said, and I don't wear robes, you know? My friend Dave Smith, uh, a friend and, and teaching colleague, who some of you know, against the screen teacher, uh, who started the Nashville Center and moved to Los Angeles uh, a couple years ago. Um, Dave and I just taught last weekend together out in, in Los Angeles. Um, Dave met Michael Stone uh, a couple years ago at the Generation X Dharma Teachers Conference and I think they were I think they were rooming together. I think they got signed up together. And I remember Dave telling me that they they pretty much never went to bed because they were just sitting up all night like like 
like little kids like at summer camp <laughs> talking about the Dharma. They couldn't, and if you know Dave, 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 Dave will stay up all night talking about the Dharma and not go to bed. Um, when I teach retreat with him, I have to stay, at some point I have to stay away. Um, so Michael had this, this fire, this, this passion for, for, for contemplative life and, and for embodying it in, in, in the real world. I want to read a short passage from Lion's Roar magazine. This, of course, from the online version. I don't know if there's anything in print yet. Michael was loved for his brilliant mind and generous heart. He was an eminent Buddhist and yoga teacher, author, uncommon activist, and human being. He had a gift for making really old practices fresh and relevant. He shone brightly. He was the bedrock of a community of yoga and meditation practitioners, first in Toronto and now an expanded international community. If you met or studied with Michael, you may remember him as wise, charismatic, and poetic. He seemed unshakable and capable of holding everyone else's suffering. And he did, but he struggled with his own. One of the ways that Michael first inspired me as a yoga teacher was in his adamant refusal to allow yoga practice to be limited to an athletic form, which is something that I was struggling as a student and teacher of contemporary Hatha yoga. I don't even think I would have taught yoga as long as I did if it weren't for Michael. Um, he showed a way of talking about it and teaching it that kept intact its transformational possibility. And he, and he wrote a book called The Inner Tradition of, of Yoga that um, has remained one of my favorite uh, and most informative uh, reads. On, on yoga practice. Um, secondly, uh, what I recall in Michael's writing is his exploration of an explicit teaching of ethics and its role in the development of one's own spirituality and social and ecological change. In at least two of these books, you'll see whole sections given to ethics, and again, interpreting them in a way that really fits who we are as a, a people and a culture today. Not in a dogmatic way that gives us a list of things to do and don't do, but helping us see the pertinent value of how what we call ethics, um, the role that plays in shaping our own uh, mental and psychological constitution. How do our behaviors affect how we think and feel and relate to ourselves and others? And what is the result of that on a personal, communal, social, ecological scale? This was uh, intellectually and emotionally, I think, um, 
what drove his work, his own contemplation of this, and then how to articulate it to us, to us as students. The questions he would ask, what role do ethics play in psychological change, and why have ethics been the guiding principle of religious activity? Where do our spiritual beliefs and practices intertwine with the personal, social, and ecological responsibility? That from an introduction to one of his books. And then for me, as a Buddhist practitioner, uh, this, this would have been before I was teaching Buddhism, but I appreciated the Buddhist filter he put on, on Hatha Yoga. I could, I could tell that he was, you know, he was doing <coughs> um, some translating through his Buddhist practice, and so his, his writings about yoga were, were very Buddhist-flavored. Right? And again, it's worth repeating uh, that what, one of the things that stood out for me was his dedication and his energy and his enthusiasm. Uh, in fact, he irked me a little bit, as a couple, uh, uh, a couple colleagues that I work more closely with do. Um, I couldn't figure out how he could get so much done. <laughs> you know, um, <coughs> I could tell that he practiced a lot. I could tell that he studied a lot. And he had generously, so obvious, he had generously given so much of his life to teaching and, and supporting others. That I know uh, that there were times when he would be teaching silent residential retreats, which if you've been on one as a student, if you've staffed one as a volunteer, many of you have, you know they can be draining. You know that you... Um, give all that you can just to get through the daily schedule. And I learned once that he would get up several hours earlier than the yogis on retreat into his own personal practice before coming into the meditation hall. When I teach retreat, I have to set an alarm to get up on time to be there on, because I'm so tired. Holding that the fact that he did so much as a teacher and a writer while being a father and a husband blew my mind. And in this example, he challenged me the most and pushed me to examine long-held beliefs that viewed these as incompatible and categorically separate life paths. And as some of you might know, 
my own discernment around whether I will try to have children or not is proving to be the most difficult and painful decision I've ever had to make. Still not sure if my girlfriend wants me talking about that publicly <laughs> and recording it for the <coughs> web site. She'll let me know though. <laughs> Three weeks. Um, Three weeks before Michael died, I I wrote on my to-do list to contact him. And as far as I know, he didn't take students anymore and only trained a small group of would-be yoga and meditation teachers that uh, were students of his. But I knew that he had been a psychotherapist. I trusted and respected him as a teacher and was holding the dual roles of father, parent and teacher and I needed help and support and counsel and couldn't in the wider arena of spirituality uh, modern day and in the generation before me find many mentors or examples of people who had done that and or at least had done that well and was desperate and uh, looking to talk to as many men as I could who might have gotten close to that decision. And for a lot of reasons, uh, I didn't, I never, I never reached out to, um, I never reached out to Michael, but I saw him in that way by observing his life as someone who if I could get them on the phone or on Skype, maybe they would uh, see something that I couldn't see in myself, or see something in the Dharma that I haven't seen, or seen something uh, in the possibility of uh, intimately and committedly partnering with another human being, and of course, possibly saw something in the role of child-rearing that might help or inform or shape me in some way.
Michael did occasionally discuss his emotional challenges in his writing and teachings. Um, though, as I said earlier, he struggled with disclosing his bipolar disorder, perhaps concerned about how he might be judged. Uh, the teaching life can be very isolating. Uh, it can be very uh, connective and fulfilling on a community level while at the same time being very isolating. The pressures and projections that one receives are constant reminders of the responsibilities of the role. For a teacher, a lot of discernment revolves around how much to disclose about one's life. This is a constant dilemma. We don't hide information, um, some maybe, but my sense is that we don't hide uh, to not be seen, but in an attempt to protect, and then if not enough is shared, it could be even a kind of harm done. So the discernment is around trying to understand that middle ground where one kind of effectively relate to, to community. It was apparent, as far as I'm concerned, that yoga and Buddhism, posture practice and meditation, Ayurveda, in his case, and other disciplines helped Michael, and also that they did not free him from the very difficult pain and suffering that he experienced. I think in Michael's life we have real examples of both how contemplative practice can help us hold our suffering and also how contemplative practice may not transform all of our difficulties and heal all of our illnesses. While Michael's life is an example of how dedicated one can be to practice, his exploration of therapy and Western medicine demonstrate how important it is that all of us as practitioners recognize when other forms are support or support, when other forms of support are needed, and that we make use of them. From Michael's book, Family Wakes Us Up, in a letter, a personal letter written to his friend and teacher, Matthew Remsky, he writes, in my yoga practice, I was working through the second series, Nadi Shodhana, of the Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga System. I see now that I was at the frayed end of a long rope. I was using meditation to hone my ability to concentrate. And in that deep concentration, I could enter a realm with almost no thought or emotion. It was pleasurable and mostly a relief. I didn't, I didn't have to think about my relationships or my doubts. In my 20s, that feeling of groundlessness appealed to me. If I could get into a state of nothingness, I'd be free. This approach definitely reduced stress. 
but it was itself unstable. My relationships weren't benefiting from this practice, to say the least. And I was scared of dealing with my unhappiness. End quote. In Michael's story, there's also evidence of the stigma that comes with mental health challenges in our culture. This is obvious. Which, this is my view, which is always a denial of the truth of suffering. To deny the truth of any kind of suffering is to dehumanize, to divide and separate and alienate. <clears throat> to do so is not inclusive. It is a sign that compassion and wisdom are undeveloped. It is fear. Michael, I believe, did not fail us in disclosing to the public his difficulties. But rather, our culture failed Michael in not offering a caring and socially acceptable container for him to reveal all parts of himself. The same author wrote in Lion's Roar, Michael came to spiritual practice innately at a young age and then to formal study as a teenager. It was also a way to take care of his mental health. For a long time, he was well enough to resist the diagnosis and stay balanced naturally through practice and self-care. But as things got worse, he opened up more to family and friends and sought medical help. Taking care of his extreme mental states became a full-time job for him and his partner, Karina. They were a team. They were doing well. His international work was incredibly inspired and flourishing. They established self-care routines. He exercised. He went to bed early. He ate a special diet. They joked about fecal transplants. He saw naturopaths and herbalists and trainers and therapists. He continued his daily practice. As things worsened, he turned to psychiatry and medication as well. Balancing his meds was ever-changing and precarious. He struggled to be completely open with those around him about how much and how deeply he struggled. He tried. In 2015, Michael shared with the community, you'd think that given all this inner work, an incredible network of support, strong friendships, a loving partner and kids, and lastly, a life dedicated to embodying Dharma, literally every single day includes practice and study that I'd be immune to extreme mental states. It can be hard to admit to ourselves that there are times when the stability of awareness that we discover in meditation just isn't there. When this started happening, I'd say my practice needs to get deeper. But the truth is, there was a chemical change in my brain. So what does the Dharma say about this? Well, pretty simple actually as far as I'm concerned. Both the yoga and Buddhist tra tradition hinge on a core foundational teaching, which is to do no harm. Okay. This is the first Buddhist precept. 
ahimsa in the yamas from the yoga tradition also do no harm. It's the foundation. What else do we, are we invited to take on as a practice in these traditions? Reduce harm. Reduce harm to the degree that we can. We always think about this in terms of changing our behavior and not being angry and right speech, and, but this applies to ourselves. Right? First and foremost, do no harm. Michael said that the yamas, the restraint practices of yoga, were the clarification of one's relationship to the world of objects and people. So getting clear about what we need to do or not do to take good care of ourselves and others. That's the, the core foundation of these traditions. What is, what is reducing harm? Acting wisely, kindly, compassionately, and generously. Again, this applies to ourself. This is not, there is not limited criteria for this. Right? Acting wisely, kindly, generously, compassionate to ourselves in all occasions, under all conditions. And regarding wisdom, when we take refuge in the Buddhist path, we make a commitment to being honest about where suffering is in our life, and we commit to exploring it and doing what is necessary to lessen or reduce it where possible. So you might have heard me recently talking about the Four Noble Truths um, as Four Noble Insights and Four Noble Skills rather than the more philosophical and psychological and quasi-dematic Four Noble Truths. Um, I like to talk, them, talk about them as one, the First Noble Insight and Skill, that we are honest about the suffering in our life our own. The second noble insight or skill, being aware of the cause of the suffering in our life, if we can. Not all suffering has a known cause. <clears throat> the third noble insight or skill, being optimistic about its alleviation. And the fourth noble insight or skill, uh, being skilled in their removal which is choosing the right practices at the right time, choosing the right support at the right time, choosing the right community at the right time. Also from Lion's Roar, same author, same post. It may be hard to put one's mind into his, to imagine how he could take such a risk with a young family, baby on the way, with such a full life and such fortune. It could be easy to shake one's head and think, what a shame. Culturally, we don't have enough language to talk about this. Rather than feel the shame and tragedy of it, can we find questions? What was he feeling? How was he coping? 
What am I uncomfortable hearing? What can we do for ourselves and others who have impulses or behaviors we cannot understand, impulses that scare us and silence us? How might we take care of each other? How uncomfortable it is, is it to be in this room right now? How uncomfortable is it is to hear this talk? How uncomfortable is it to bump up against your own experience you're having in hearing the talk? Michael did amazing work in the world and changed the lives of so many. He was a beautiful father and loving husband. He loved his life, his work, and his students deeply. He was loved immeasurably. He continues. And I'm going to close from another short passage that Michael wrote to his friend and co-author, Matthew, uh, in Family Wakes Us Up. Family Wakes Us Up. Uh, Michael and Matthew's wives were both, actually, I'm not sure if Matthew was married at the time, but their partners both were uh, pregnant at the same time. And they made a commitment to each other to uh, correspond every single day uh, in letter about their experience uh, of being an expectant father. And they took that unedited, fully disclosed themselves in ways that most teachers would never do. And they put it out in, in book form. It was edited for grammar and punctuation, but. Um, it's their real thoughts and feelings. Uh, and in here, <clears throat> Michael writes to Matthew, I think of practice now in terms of cultivating intimacy. I've come to believe that the whole material world is nothing but relationships, with love as the glue holding everything together. How do I love what is right in front of me without trying to change it or make it my own? I've come full circle back to the beginning of my practice, but the focus has changed. Now my body, this city, my son, my child-to-be, my life with Karina, his wife, the building of community, these are my anchors in my home. In fact, it has never been otherwise. It just took me a while to see it that way. So I'd like to just pause and sit quietly for about a minute. <clears throat> 